0: Good morning. Glad to be with you this Sunday. Uh, As I begin, I want to share with you a story of the second year, the second year of marriage between Christina and I. Uh, One day she sent me to Walmart uh, to get a TV stand for our little TV in our living room. And uh, so I go to Walmart, me and my friend go, it's like this $50 little white thing. And so we go and we get to the TV stand area. And I noticed the $50 one was like placed in a more expensive like rack and like there's a $197 one I think was placed like in the $50 rack and so I got an employee and I was like I just want the $50 one and make sure this is the correct price and she says it is but we have a policy that if we put something in the wrong like rack or area you can actually pay for what the rack thing says and so there was like this $197 TV stand placed in the $50 one she asked me do I want it for $50 and I'm thinking well Christina sent me to get this specific one. But why would you not want like bigger and better? Like who would say no to this? So I said, "Yeah, sure. I'll, I mean, I'll take it." And so she takes me to the electronics area to do the check out and she has to get her manager to approve the little you know, the big discount. Of course, he seemed not happy. And then, of course, I felt bad because I'm like, we don't have to do this, you know, whatever. But anyway, so I get it. I get this really expensive TV stand for 50 bucks. We, we were pulling it out, you know, going to the parking lot, going back to the car. As soon as we get out of Walmart, I start busting out laughing like, I cannot believe I got this awesome deal. It's going to be great. I get, <laughs> I get home, show to Christina, and she says, what is this? And I'm like, what do you mean, what is it? I did bigger and better than you could have asked or imagined. Like, that's what I did, right? Now, I share that story for two things. One, I had not quite learned yet in the second year of marriage that when your wife sends you to get something for the house, you get exactly what she says. Like, you don't pick something out. You, don't, you do exactly what she wanted, because RTB at the time was this like little 32-inch thing, and it looked ridiculous. I mean, I thought I still thought it was awesome, but it looked ridiculous, right? Now, here's the thing. Because I had not quite learned that fact about marriage, that you do what your wife tells you to do when you buy something for the house, you could say, okay, Dylan, you made the wrong decision. You should have bought what she told you to buy." However, you know that I didn't do it maliciously. It's not like I intentionally went out of my way to to make the wrong decision. I did the best that I could given the circumstances and given what I knew at that moment to do what I thought was best. And although it ended up being the wrong decision, and I know this is a lighthearted example, no one would accuse me of intentionally trying to upset Christina. And I share that because this is the question we're going to be looking at this morning. What should you do when you don't know what to do? That is the question. We are faced in life with decisions every day, all the time. where We are not quite sure what to do. The question is, what do we do? And I'm not just talking about maybe moral or ethical dilemmas. Maybe you have uh, 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 multiple good options for a job, uh, for something going on, right? You're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what decision I should make. What do you do in those situations? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 2. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you now last week we started uh, the book of Esther it's an Old Testament book taking place at around 480 BC in the Persian Empire uh, at this point the Persian Empire is the largest and most powerful uh, Empire in human history up until this point uh, to again give you kind of some to catch you up I will just kind of give this disclaimer Esther is just one long story and so I'll do my best every week to catch you up but you will probably miss a few things here or there if you're not here on a Sunday of course you can go watch and listen to the sermons online if you miss a week but that would be helpful and beneficial to beneficial to you as we go through the story. And so what we saw last week, really quick, was King uh, Xerxes is his Persian name, or King Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name, uh, is the king of Persia. Uh, This is... um, at this point, he he has this massive feast, uh, this uh, long banquet, because he's trying to rally his kingdom for this coming war against Greece. So they're going to take on Greece. And uh, basically, the chapter ends by, at the the end of this massive banquet, he tells Queen Vashti, who was the queen at that time, to come and present herself to uh, the political leaders and the allies who are in this room. And by present herself, it kind of meant come and be naked and let us all stare at you, right? Now, uh, she says no. And so uh, the king uh, pretty much deposes of her, kind of sends her in exile and isolation for the rest of her life. And so now there is no queen. And this is how chapter one or chapter two begins. After all that happens, there is no queen. They're getting ready for this war against Greece. It says this, verse one, sometime later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti what she had done and what was decided against her. Now again, we're not told exactly how to, how long some time later is, but we do know in verse 16, which we'll read in a minute, it tells us that Esther came before the king in the seventh year of his reign, which would be about four years after the events that took place in chapter one, which means that chapter two takes place roughly about a year after this massive war with Greece. So four years ago, chapter one begins, they did this massive feast, and then three years after that, this expedition against Greece takes place, a uh, Persian is unsuccessful in doing what they wanted to do, and so the king is humiliated. Uh, the, the kingdom takes a hit, and that's what's going on here. He's kind of, kind of getting feeling a little bit better. It's been about a year since this devastating loss, trying to feel better about himself, and that's what happens here. Verse 2, the king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king, <clears throat> uh, let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Heggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. The young woman who presents, uh, pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So here's what's happening here, and as we said last week, maybe you're somewhat familiar with this book from, from Sunday school growing up. Uh, this is not a this is a lot a darker and more intense than you might remember. What is happening here? What is being suggested to the king is not some beauty, beauty contest. That's not what's happening at all. Instead, what is happening is extremely sad, and shows what happens when a king or when a person has absolute power. They can do whatever they wanted to do, and so what, what, what took place here? What is being suggested is that all throughout the kingdom, they would take young women, young virgins from all different parts of the kingdom, and they would be taken into his harem, and they would live there for a year. They would go through a variety of different beauty treatments and things to, uh, to prepare them for their one night to sleep with the king and after which they would be sent back to the harem for the rest of their life. If you slept with the king, you could never get married or sleep with another man, and so they would get, live the rest of their life in pretty much loneliness and isolation from their family and friends. This is a very terrible thing that is happening. So verse 5, here's what happens next. <clears throat> in the fortress of Susa, which is kind of the, the winter palace of the kingdom, if you will, uh, where they're staying, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jar, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite he had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. So there's two things that are happening here. Number one, this is showing us that this this initial exile took place about 120 years ago. So about 120 years ago, before the events of this book take place, the Jewish people were taken over by by Babylonians who at some point subsequently had been taken over in Persia. In other words, the original readers of this book would have been, in exile for all of their lives. And all of their known relatives had would have been in exile for all of their lives. This is all that they have known. And so Mordecai's family is one of the Jewish families, again, that was taken into exile from Jerusalem. And so basically this tension has been this for all these years, especially for faithful Jews. How do we hold to our Jewish identity while also assimilating into this Persian uh, nation? right? How do we do with that? That's the first thing. The second thing that would have stuck out to you, especially as a original reader, was Mordecai. Mordecai was a Persian name, and this would have been a really big red flag, especially for Jews who were trying to live faithfully. Mordecai comes from Marduk, which is a Persian god. Uh, and as we'll see, uh, Mordecai has uh, has radically assimilated quite well into Persian culture. So much so that we see that not only did he live in Susa, which was kind of the capital, but he lived in the fortress or the citadel, which means that he is kind of climbing the political ranks in the Persian kingdom. So he would have done things, or he would have ate things that were against a dietary law. He would have done things that would have been against Jewish custom at that time. And he would Have pretty much stripped everything of what it means to be a Jew. He would have kind of slowly uh, ignored those things, and he's fully fledged into the Persian Empire at this time. Uh, Mordecai, in other words, was anything but set apart. As a Jewish person living in exile, he was doing nothing to hold to his Jewish identity, and this would have been a really big deal to faithful Jews. They would have looked at this and thought, Mordecai, what is this guy doing? Surely he's not going to be a main character because clearly God is not going to use someone like that. Someone who kind of made all of these terrible decisions and is not living faithfully for him. Now, what we could do and what possibly might be the tension maybe for the original readers is to look at that and be upset. Why? Because Mordecai, again, has kind of abandoned his faith and it's completely assimilated into his culture. And of course, we know that this is the same tension that you and I can face today. If you are a follower of Christ, the question is how do we kind of assimilate and live in our culture but also above, honor him and above him above all things? Because all of us, if we are not careful, or, or, or can be do things that we probably would look back and say I shouldn't do it. So, like for example, I know this is a small thing, but it shows us how easy it is to assimilate into the culture in which we live. When I was, I think, in high school, freshman year of high school, or eighth grade, high school though, it was um, when the iPods were originally coming out right? So that was like a cool thing to have an iPod. And what was the cooler thing about having the iPod in particular was the white headphones, right? If you had white headphones, it's like you have an iPod, you must be cool. And so I remember one year for my birthday wanting an iPod. And so it was ended up being like $200 or something like that. So like I saved up some money and with the birthday money, I bought it. And what and what's funny about this is like I've never been a big music person. Like even though I play piano, like I like music. Like when I was growing up, I watched sports and just listened to sports radio all the time. And now I predominantly just listen to podcasts. When I'm working. I can't listen to music because it distracts me. Like music has never been like something that I have to listen to all the time. So why would I buy an iPod simply for the white headphones? Which you could have said, Dylan. Why didn't you just buy a pair of white headphones? I don't know. That's what you do when you're 13. You just do whatever you think is fun and cool and what makes you uh, fit in, right? So I share that example of like this is what happens. Like if we don't, if we're not careful, if we're not thinking things through, it's easy to assimilate into the culture in which we live. And so the question for us is just this: If you're a follower of Christ. You might want to ask yourself, how different am I, right? How different are we? Of course, we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to kind of do things that make people be like, why? why? What are you doing? Like, who are you? However, there are certain things, if you are a follower of Christ, that you that will cause you to stand out, even if you're not trying to, right? Maybe certain things you don't say. There's certain places you don't go. There's certain things that you refrain from, that other people are doing, that there should be something that people that are close to you, that at least know you best, ought to be able to say there is something different about this person. That was the struggle for them, and it's the struggle for us today. In other words, here's the point that we see from this text, that faithfulness is not accidental faithfulness to God does not happen by accident. Again, we can look at Mordecai's life and probably see that when he was a kid, he probably didn't have these grand plans to join the political ranks and to do all these things, but probably slowly but surely, day after day, small decision after small decision, he one day finds himself where he is today. This is why things like the 21 days of prayer and fasting that we're doing are so important, that if you want to grow closer to God and strengthen your relationship with Him, you and I have to do things that intentionally push us towards that process or else we won't get there. And when it comes to 21 days of prayer and fasting, the funny thing is when we say 21 days of prayer, we're like, okay, like I can do that. Let's not do bad. But then we throw the fasting part in there and we're like, mmm. I'm not sure about that. Like, that's like not eat food. Like, are you sure? And so let me just say, again, as you leave, you'll get more information about it. It starts next Sunday. I would say this. If there are health reasons as to why you should fast from maybe something else other than food, do that. But if you can, there are different ways you can fast from different types of food or different periods of time or do whatever that might be that I would highly encourage you to do some sort of food fast over these next 21 days starting next Sunday because hunger shows us and reminds us that we are actually relying on God to sustain us. So things like this help us stay faithful and go closer to him, because here's the reality of the situation. Just like the Jews who are living in exile at their time, if you're a follower of Christ, you and I are also living in exile, knowing that this is not our home, that we will not be here forever, but God's kingdom is the goal, that you and I are going to live in a world that will sometimes pull us or encourage us to do things that we might not want to do. And so whenever you are a person living in some sort of exiled state, you have two options. Conformity, or isolation, right? You can conform to the culture and what it's telling you to do, or if you don't, you risk isolation. And so the tension for them, the tension for us, is how do we kind of straddle that line of living in our culture and loving and being for caring for other people, but also being faithful to God? Because as we see, faithfulness does not happen by accident. It takes small, consistent practices for us to grow closer to God. And so with that, we'll continue. Here's what it says next, verse 7. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is uh, Esther. So Hadassah would have been her Hebrew name, Esther was her Persian name, because she had no father or mother. Uh, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. So what's happening here is Esther as well. This is her Persian name. This would have caused a little bit of red flags. what is this woman with a Persian name going by a Persian name doing in this story about God's people? Uh, 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 Esther probably likely comes from the goddess of, of named Ishtar. And again, it might be like, what do we what do we do with this? Like there's Mordecai, there's Esther. They seem to be assimilated quite well to Persian culture. What does this mean? Verse eight. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young woman, women were gathered at the fortress of Suser, Susa under Hegai's supervision, Esther had, was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, the keeper of the women. So again, this was a very sad process. Most, if not pretty much the grand majority of the women taken would have been taken against their will and their desires. Now, all of their needs, their physical needs, would have been taken care of. However, they would have been taken from their friends and family forever, likely never to see their family again, which is an even even bigger deal for them than it us today. So it was a very sad process. But what is happening here? They're saying, come with us, we'll take care of your daughter, all of her needs will be met, then of course the daughter will be forced to do things that she does not want to do. This is, if we were to put modern terminology on what is happening here, the very definition of sex trafficking right? And this still happens today. People go into homes, particularly in underdeveloped countries, and say, here's the promise. You know, you're poor. Things aren't going well for you. Let me take your daughter or your son. I promise to take care of them. And then they're stuck doing this. This is sex trafficking. It happens today. And especially for our modern sensibilities, this should cause disgust for us. Now, here's the the deal about this. As we talked about last week, that it's really easy, and we need to remember that evil does not just reside in those who have power. It's easy to look at people like Ahasuerus or Xerxes or maybe political leaders and say they're the terrible people, they do all these bad things, but what do we know? We can still do those bad things as well, we just can't do them to the scale or to the degree that they can because we don't have their power. And maybe you know this or maybe you don't, but the the majority of those who are involved in pornography today are actually sex trafficked. The last time you you might have consumed uh, pornography, it is more likely than not that you saw someone who was involved in sex trafficking. In other words, pornography is a big deal. And even if you were going to Argue, well, I don't think there is anything morally wrong with viewing pornography. You just need to know the number one supplier of, of pornographic material in the world today is from tra- sex trafficking. This is matters and just as a side note man if you I don't say this to condemn anybody I don't say this for anyone to feel guilty but I want to say this matters and if this is a struggle for you you you've got to have people come around you to help you there's software called covenant eyes which I always recommend to people but this is something that we have to care about if we care about sex trafficking we can't turn a blind eye and say pornography does not matter because that is what is happening here and if we continue here's what happens next verse 9. Uh, the young woman, so talking about Esther here, pleased him, talking about Haggai, the keeper of the woman, so she pleased him and gained his favor, so that he accelerated the process of beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female stu- uh, servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. So here's what's happening here. While Esther, and this is what makes it hard about this book, right? Because we're not told the motiva- motivations or why people decide what they do, right? So what we see here is that Esther likely has no choice in joining the harem, which again makes, is curious to us because it, like, it seems likely, although we don't know for sure, that Mordecai might have been able to do something to prevent her from joining because he was, uh, you know, he was affiliated with some of the political leaders at that time, but he doesn't. And so she's in the harem. So she's there, to be clear, against her will. Uh, but what's interesting here is that once she's there, she seems to become a willing participant in what is happening. What we're told here, what we'll be told later, is that uh, is that Esther seems to be gaining the favor of everybody that she is running into and everybody that she is meeting with. So again, we don't know what, exactly why this is the case, but mo- the majority of commentators today seems to point seems to be pointing to although she had no choice once she was there, she seemed to be a willing participant in what was going on. So again, this is hard for us, right? Because we're not told to do. We're not told why. We're not sure what to do with it, and it makes it difficult. And so as we're going to see, although Esther and particularly Mordecai will make decisions that are sinful or wrong at times, they still deserve our sympathy. Why? Because when we understand their story, particularly Esther and what is happening to her, it makes us be a lot more gracious and forgiving and understanding about what is is going on here. And this shows us why people's stories matter, right? It is really easy for you and for eye uh, for me to judge people that we don't know. People, even people groups, things that are going on. If we don't know anybody that's involved with something, it's easy for us to say, I can't believe you're doing that. How dare you, right? And since we're already on the topic of maybe difficult things, as we just talked about sex trafficking, let me give you a modern example of how it is easy to judge somebody without knowing their story. Last week, I was talking to somebody who has a sibling who is currently in the process of transitioning from, from a male to a female. Right, changing genders from a female or from a male to a female now without knowing her and her story and what's going on there it's easy for you and I to you potentially say how dare you right you shouldn't do that that's not wise and we could even say scripturally or biblically we would not recommend that that God has created male and female good and distinct for a reason right and so it's really easy to sit there and judge somebody who is going through the transition process however if you knew this person and if you knew their story and if you knew maybe some of the questions and the fears and the doubts that they had some of the bullying that that they may have bullying, that they may have experienced. It doesn't mean you change whether or not you agree with the decision, but you know what would change in your heart? Compassion, right? You and I would move from disgust over decision to compassion about what is going on, which then leads to this question. At the end of the day, what is more important? right is it more important to be loving or is it more important to tell the truth right and of course the truth is important especially like the gospel that God loves us that Jesus is the only way to salvation like people should know that or maybe just moral decisions that we make like people need to know the difference between white right and wrong right so truth matters definitely matters but also loving matters and make people feel uh, cared for that you're there and, and loving them the way God has loved us but if you so if you had to choose which would you choose if you had to choose what would you choose It is my opinion, and I think it's the correct one, that the answer to that question is love. Now, why would we say that? Why would we say that love is more important than being truthful to other people? Uh, If you were here last year, we went through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. It's really the theme of the entire book, and it comes to the pinnacle in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul talks about how loving others is the greatest thing that we can do. And so here's why we would say that being loving is more important than telling the truth. Here's why. Because no one will hear the truth without love. Nobody cares what you have to say if they feel like you don't care about them, right? And you know this, right? I know this. All of us have had either a teacher or a coach or a parent or a mentor. We've had people in our lives who have sat us down and said, don't do this. Here are all the reasons why you shouldn't do this. Who, who People who we don't feel like they care about us, who, who people we don't feel like are invested in our life. And they may tell us good things. They may have good advice to us but because they are not caring, because they are not gentle, because we don't think that they love us. We don't care what they say, right? No one will hear the truth if they they are not loved. And particularly when it comes to Esther and Esther and Mordecai's story, and even the stories of those of us in our lives, here's what this means for us that grace is better than judgment. Being graceful to others is better than being judgmental towards others. That grace is always the thing that changes our hearts. We might say do this or don't do this, but regulations and obligations will only last so long. What we need is a heart change, and that actually changes our behavior. So let me give you an example from my life. When I was in eighth grade, so from third to seventh grade, I was homeschooled. Me and my brothers were all homeschooled at the same time, and so I went back to school in the eighth grade, and the first quarter comes about, I get my report card. I get all A's and B's, everything's going well, great. Well, something happened after the first quarter. I don't know why, but like I stopped caring as much. Maybe it's because I was making more friends. I was like, who cares about this? And so it it was different back then. Now, you know, parents can go online and see grades at all times, but you couldn't do that. And so halfway through the quarter, you would get what was called an interim report right? And you would bring this interim report home so your parents could see how you were doing. So it was the second quarter. Again, first quarter, I was smashing it, getting great grades or whatever. At least A's and B's for me were, were good. I was never a straight A student. And so I get, uh, get this report or this interim report. It's a Friday afternoon. And I'm walking home with my friends and I look at my interim report. It is bad. C's and D's all over the place. And I'm like, well, you know, it's been a good 12 years. <laughs> I've made some good memories. I've got some good friends but I'm going to die. Like, this is it for me, right? It's over, right? So I get home, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. My dad's coming home. Right? And so what happens is that night, we end up going to the movie. So it was my parent, my mom, and my dad. I guess my brothers were there too, and I'm thinking, well, just go out with a bang, right? Like, one less fun thing, and then it's over for me. Like, and then I'm going to, I guess when it's over, it's over, right? And so we, we get to the movie theater, buy the tickets, and we're like standing in the lobby area, and so my mom and my dad sit me down at a table, and they said, Dylan, your grades are unacceptable. And they said, by the time that the quarter is over, you're going to have all A's and B's. Now, let's go, essentially, let's go watch the movie. You're not in trouble. And I'm thinking, I didn't die, right? Nothing happened to me, right? They, they gave me grace. What do you think I got when the quarter was over? All A's and B's. What happened there? That I was given grace over judgment. Now here's the thing. There are sometimes where we have to, where our decisions do uh, bring up immediate consequences. But as so far as it depends on us as best we can, our default response, especially if you are a follower of Christ, is not judgment. It's grace. Why? Because this is what God has done for us. The gospel is that you and I deserve God's wrath and condemnation. And What do we get instead? We get grace. That God would come in the form of a man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves that we did not even deserve. That we didn't even ask for. That he would give of his life so that anyone is just who is just honest about their state before God. That you and I are broken, fallen sinners. That we can be honest. That we can repent. And what does God do? He gives us grace, forgiveness, and mercy. This is why following Jesus is not something that happens out of obligation or out of guilt, because if you do that after a while, eventually you give up. But instead, if you are following Jesus out of thankfulness and gladness for what he has done for you to have a relationship with him and to one day enter into his kingdom, not because you're a great person, because he's an amazing God, that is grace, and that changes your heart. Grace is better than judgment. And if we miss that, we miss that on the heart of God, and we forget the fact that this is what God has done for us. Grace is better than judgment. And so if we pick up the story, here's what happens next, starting in verse 12. It says, During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, The harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh uh, uh, for six months, and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's unit, Shahazgaz, the keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by... Name. So again, essentially, each woman was prepared for a year, and this, uh, Esther would have done this as well, uh, do different things to kind of train them and to kind of beautify themselves, whatever that exactly looked like, uh, before they entered with the, uh, their, night, their one night with the king, and then they would pro- rarely, if ever, see him again. Verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's unit, keeper of the woman, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. Again, this is what becomes difficult for us, right? So it's Esther's turn to go before the king, and she only takes what Haggai suggested. Now, the question is why? Like, why does she do this? Does she only do what he suggested because she doesn't care and she just wants the situation to be over and so she's just doing whatever she can to speed up the process? Or is it because she actually trusted trusted Haggai to tell her what to do to gain the king's favor? We don't know. Uh, It seems to be that the author is trying to tell us that she was trying to gain the king's favor intentionally, but we don't know. Like, nobody is told, we're not told why she made the decision that she made. Is she doing this intentionally? Is she doing this just to make people happy? Is she doing this just to get the situation over with? We don't know. But regardless, she requested, she asked Haggai what to do. He tells her, and then she goes in with the king, verse 16. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's Bounty. So again, we're not given any details about how this all came about, how she actually gained the queen's favor or the king's favor, but she did. She kind of wins the competition, if you will, and now she becomes queen. Now at this point, you and I, as readers, we run into quite a few difficulties, right? Because the first thing is, how are we actually supposed to feel about this, right? She was taken uh, without her desire, and then this, all this happens, and then she seems to be playing a part when she's there. Like, how are we supposed to feel about this? So again, as a Jew, she is sleeping with a Gentile, someone who is not a fear of God, and she's also not Mary, right? Both of these things were forbidden by Jewish custom at that time in their history. So as a Jewish reader, you would look at that regardless of the circumstances and just on the surface and say, this is not good. And yet what we see later on throughout Esther is that God ends up using her in powerful ways because she's actually the queen. So the question is, is it worth it, right? So is it a good thing that she becomes queen because God is clearly going to use that? Well, the problem with that scenario is then then you can come to this conclusion that the ends justify the means, right? That you can do whatever you want as long as good things happen at the end. And this is not a principle that you and I would want to follow, right? This is not something that we would tell our kids, do whatever you want to do as long as good things happen in the end, right? Why? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, right, God's people should want to and should desire to love and honor him as best we can as we go throughout our life. And so what do we do, Right? What do we do? Again, on top of all of this, we are not given God's perspective on it. We don't know what he thinks. We don't even know what the characters think. And so this can be a tension. This can be ambiguous. And like, what do we do all of this? And I would say in the midst of that tension, in the midst of that ambiguity, it actually gives us hope, right? This, this tension actually gives us hope. Because why? Uh, even though you and I are not Esther or Mordecai, all of us every day face situations and circumstances in the murkiness of life where we don't always know what to do. Right? We don't always know what do we do. Or maybe you're in a situation where both options are bad. Like I don't think Esther had a good option as a faithful Jew. There is no like faithful Jewish option for her here. What do we do in those situations? Here is why I think the ambiguity of this gives us hope. And I'm going to read. This is a quote from Karen Jobs in her excerpt or her commentary uh, of. Of, uh, of Esther, and it's a few sentences long, but she sums up masterfully what is going on in this, in this context and how this is good news for us. Here's what she says. She says, This episode from Esther's life offers great encouragement and comfort when we find ourselves in situations where every choice is an odd mix of right and wrong. Only God knows the end of our story from its beginning. We are responsible to Him for living faithfully in obedience to His Word in every situation as best we know how. Even if we make the wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent, which is all-powerful, that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that uh, will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Esther may have looked back on this episode of her life with shame and regret, or she may have looked back on it with a clear conscience, knowing that she acted as wisely as she knew how at the time. In either case, every one of us also has both kinds of episodes in our lives. Esther's story shows us that we can trust them to the Lord and move on. In other words, if I could sum all this up for us and why this is good news for us, this chapter 2, you know, it's difficult and dark. Here's what I would say. This is why this is good news for us. That your past does not disqualify you from God's purposes. What we see in this text, no matter who you are, no matter how much you have assimilated, or no matter, maybe like Esther, you have done things have been done to you that are completely outside of your control. Your past does not disqualify you from what God wants to do and can do through you. And in fact, in God's graciousness to us, He often uses our poor decisions to help us love and encourage and impact other people. Particularly as we're reading this and you're looking at Mordecai. Mordecai is not somebody who you would assume that God would use. If anything, you would assume that God's judgment will come down swiftly and harshly on Mordecai. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that for some reason, at some point, Mordecai is faced with a decision and he chooses to do the faithful and wise thing and God uses him in powerful ways and the same thing is true for Esther. And so again, no matter, maybe you've made poor decisions, maybe bad things have happened to you outside of your control, you and I need to remember that the graciousness of God means that your past does not disqualify you from God's purposes. Your past does not disqualify you from God's love for you. Your past does not disqualify you from God's God's goodness and favor in your life. Because again, the gospel is not what you have done. It's about what he has done for you you. Again, as we remember Jesus and his life and his sacrificial death, it means that you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. You have no one to explain. You don't have to go to God and say, here's why I did all these things. Can you please use me? That he sees it all. He knows our stories and he gives us grace when He when we do not deserve it. And so again, it's the new year and we're trying to, maybe this time of year, trying to better ourselves and improve our character and get better at all these things. And that's wise and that's good. But we need to remember as we fall short, as we blow it, that not a single person in this room, not a single person on this earth is too far gone from God's goodness, is too far gone from God's love, that all of us are given the grace and mercy of the Father, and we see that and how He sacrificed and gave His Son for us. Your past does not disqualify you from God's purposes.